Hey everybody, it's Lou Rosenfeld uh, talking to you live from Brooklyn, New York uh, with Dave Gray, author of The Connected Company, co-author of GameStorming, uh, founder of X-Plane, uh, author of a forthcoming book with Rosenfeld Media. I think we're still working on the title, but it has a lot to do with what you're going to be talking about, Dave, at Enterprise UX 2015. First of all, hi Dave, how are you? Hi Lou, great, how are you? Doing great. Glad to be talking with you. Uh, we are, um, as uh, people who are listening to these podcasts may know, putting on the Enterprise UX 2015 conference in San Antonio in mid-May. And if you want to know more, the URL is enterpriseux.net. And we have two keynoters. Uh, Greg Petroff from GE is our opener, and our closer is you, Dave. And I'm really pretty excited to have you uh, involved the book is so spot on for uh, closing this event. Uh, the book is, is provisionally titled, uh, I think it's provisionally titled still, uh, Liminal Thinking. Is that right? Yeah, that's the provisional title, but it, we may change it, I think, uh, depending on how well that resonates. But the uh, um, another uh, way that I have thought, been thinking about it is sort of, the art of the change agent or how to be a change agent it has a lot to do with being um, an instigator of change and learning how to get better at making change happen. So I, now I think that, you know, one of the, there's a lot of people talking about making change happen, but I think one of the really cool things that you bring, especially with your visual thinking background, uh, is essentially giving people some tools to make sense of large organizational spaces, maybe visually, maybe through other techniques, so that you can actually understand the space that you're trying to change. Am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it comes from a, uh, I've been working on changes, you know, for many years. And one of the questions I often get from people when I'm talking about change or change management and that kind of thing is, Hey, Dave, uh, I'm not at the top. I'm not the CEO. Uh, I'm in the middle somewhere. I'm a middle manager or I'm a director or I'm uh, frontline. What can I do? What can I do from somewhere in the middle of the organization? There's not a big change initiative, but I see change is necessary. I believe change needs to happen. What can I do? And that's a question. That's a great question. And uh, when I first got it, it was a hard one to answer because a lot of this Thinking traditional thinking about change has had to do with driving change from the top. That the people at the top think about it and decide what's necessary, and then uh, the change initiative is often about help bringing people up to speed, getting them to buy into the rationale, getting them on board, so to speak. But I kept getting this question, and I kept thinking about it and working on it, and um, I think after many years, I, I think I have the an answer. So. That's what I think is, to me, very powerful and very different about this is the idea that you can lead change from anywhere in the organization. You don't have to be at the top, especially if you can see that change is necessary and you have a desire to make changes happen. There are things you can do no matter where you are. So uh, fill it in a little bit more. So if I'm somewhere in the middle, I'm not at the very top of an organization, uh, you're telling me that, in a way, I may be empowered in, in ways I never would have imagined, in fact, in ways that I basically may have given up on. I may have given up hope 
Can you take it a little further and give me some concrete ideas about how I might make change happen? Yeah. When you work in an organization, especially over many years, you've been there for a while, you start to, just like in any part of your life, whether it's your family or uh, your friends or your teammates, you tend to wear yourself a groove or you know form routines and habits, and the organizations have routines and habits. Sometimes one way of talking about that is organizational culture, and culture is something that is sometimes hard to see because we've kind of going through our life, going through our habits and routines, and we uh, almost tend to forget about all the other options that are available to us. Just like when you walk, if you have a, a dog and you walk your dog and you have a regular way that you walk your dog, you, you might tend to not explore things that you might uh, otherwise explore if it were a completely new path. So, the word liminal is, comes from a Latin root. It means threshold. The idea is that there are thresholds. There are, there are doorways of opportunity all around you all the time. This is true in your home life as well as in your work life that you tend not to see because you're in, you're in autopilot. So liminal thinking in, in one sense is a kind of uh, mindfulness, paying attention and being aware of what's happening in the moment and what the possibilities are in the moment, and also being aware of your own sort of prejudgments and habits and routines that can get in the way of you seeing what's possible. So if you think about it, you know, um, there are about 11 million bits per second, by some estimates, of information coming into your through your senses your taste, your, most of it's through your vision, but you have taste, touch, hearing, and uh, our mental capacity, our short-term memory is able to handle maybe 50 uh, to 100 bits per second. So that's 100 out of 11 million. <laughs> so think about the number of things that uh, you could be noticing or paying attention to uh, that you're not. And there's a tendency to believe when you act in a certain way, when you do things and you get a response from people, there's a tendency to think, well, that's the only way it could be. But you can, you have in any moment, probably hundreds of choices of what you can think, believe and do and act, how you can act in the moment. And by changing those, simply by saying, you know, you're not going to go on autopilot, you're not going to go by habit and routine, you can find all kinds of opportunities and doors that you would otherwise never see. So Dave, you have a, a really great video on your site, davegrayinfo.com. Uh, this was from about a month ago, January 23rd. And uh, it's what is liminal thinking. And you, you're basically kind of digging into what we call the obvious. And that what's the obvious for me is obviously going to be different than and what it might be for you. And, and therein lies kind of the problem that a lot of us face. You know, meanwhile, we're being slammed with all this information, as you're saying, and it's, just, it's a defense mechanism, right? You have to have a filter of some sort in order to, to kind of squeeze some meaning into that 150 bits per second that we can actually handle. Um, so are you helping people, or do you think you're going to be able to help people change that filter to kind of expand it in some different directions and um, maybe or open it up in a way to things that might be giving us a better picture of the obvious? Yeah, well, I mean, what, what happens is there's a thing that, there's a guy named Chris Argerus. Uh, he's, he was a Harvard researcher into culture, organizational culture and change and behavior. 
And he uh, describes something called the ladder of inference. And I talk about that in the video. But basically, the ladder of inference is a sort of a series of steps that we go through of interpreting our experience and kind of prejudging what, what, we, what we expect to happen. And so we form beliefs based on our past experiences, based on the things that we've actually paid attention to, theories that we have. And um, we, we sort of create this bubble of belief around ourselves. And we think that's reality. You know, we, we, we think of it as obvious. Um, but the fact is that it's, it's, it's a construction. And all, all of our beliefs, everything we know are constructions. Now, I might be sounding a little bit like uh, some kind of a Swami guru type uh, person here. But I'll give you a concrete example from someone. A uh, story I heard from a guy who is a software engineer. He's a coder, and he was, uh, their team, they were burning themselves out. They were working late nights, and they agreed, as a team, they agreed, look, we're going we're gonna to just work nine to five days. We're going to get as much done as we can to get done. Uh, we're not going to stay late. We're not going to work late at night. You know, pace ourselves. Slow and steady wins the race. Well, there was one guy on the team who just didn't do that. He was staying late at night, and the guy who told me the story was getting quite frustrated by that. And he had this idea in his head. What seemed obvious to him was that this guy was macho, trying to prove himself, uh, trying to outdo all the other coders, trying to show them that uh, you know he was a tough guy. Everything that he could observe about this guy confirmed that belief. One night... Late at night, he was frustrated enough that he went over and he confronted the guy about it. And the guy broke down in tears. And what he discovered was that this guy was working late, not because he was trying to prove anything, but because home wasn't a safe place for him. And um, they were able to have uh, some breakthroughs there because, you know, uh, my friend went up and talked to him and had a conversation. Now, there are many, many, many instances in our lives where we have theories about other people and we don't go out to try and figure out if our theories are right. We have uh, theories about why they do what they do, what they're thinking, what's going on in their minds. We have theories about our bosses. We have theories about other people. We have theories about the CEO. And we never, uh, very rarely, as long as the behavior is consistent with our theory, we very rarely will go and test that theory and see if we're right. And it often takes a conversation. People behave in all kinds of ways for all kinds of reasons. And without being able to uh, step up to someone, have a conversation, and truly listen, suspend your own judgment, suspend your disbelief, um, try and understand where they're coming from, uh, you can walk around with the, the obvious in your head, but the obvious can, can be very, very wrong. And what we don't often realize is that our version of the obvious is in some ways, unconsciously, we design it to fulfill our own unmet needs. And let's take this back to the enterprise setting. So in a large organization, um, uh, am I going to already kind of be encouraged to, to, to not look beyond what's the obvious to me? Is it self-reinforcing? Uh, you know, I mean, maybe at senior levels it is because you're not challenged in a hierarchical organization. 
I'm just kind of wondering about the enterprise specifically, and and you know, does it make this harder? Does it also present some opportunities to to make change happen in ways that that might be more challenging elsewhere? Maybe once you break, have a breakthrough in the enterprise, things go faster and better. Well, enterprises are uh, often not safe. They they're not places that feel safe to a lot of people. They can be they can have a lot of fear in them. You know, there's politics, there's gossip, there's rumors. There's also, uh, you know, in a sense, it can be easy to hide in a large enterprise. It can be easy for people to get away with not doing a lot of work or taking credit for other people's work and so forth. Very few people um, have a very clear picture of how other people see them, right? Um, you have, you may have your idea of how other people see you, but that's not the same thing as knowing how other people really see you. And the more attached you are to how other people see you and how other people understand you, the less you're able to actually going to be able to get objective about it because you're going to, you know, you're going to want to protect that. One way that you can, you know, test whether you're inside, I think I mentioned before this idea of a bubble that we create. It's a sort of self-sealing logic. And there's been some research into this. One of the more interesting studies I found was one where they had, they examined people, people's beliefs when they had been proven to be wrong. And for example, the, the one that they actually used in the study was uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So as you probably know or remember that the, the pretext or the, uh, the reasoning or the rationale for us going into Iraq on the second time was um, that there were weapon that uh, Saddam Hussein was storing and stockpiling weapons of mass destruction with the intention of using them. And once we went in, we didn't really find any. We, we found some really old stuff from the before the first Gulf War, but we didn't find anything uh, in the nature of what they were looking for. And what they did was they went out and talked to people about the who had this belief. What happened? People had this self-sealing logic. So basically their logic was, well, we went in because there were weapons of mass destruction. And this, there's something that I call a, um, uh, an invested belief, because as you take actions based on a belief that you have, the more you take actions based on a belief, the, uh, the more you invested you become in that belief and the harder it becomes to change a belief. In other words, if you have a kind of a loosely held belief and you've never acted on it, it's much easier to change than one that you've, let's say, a belief that you've been acting on that belief your whole life. It becomes much harder to change it. So what happens is you, you talk to people in this category who had the belief that there were weapons of mass destruction, and you, you demonstrate or you prove to them that there were no weapons of mass destruction. And what do they say? Well, they say, well, there must have been a reason or we wouldn't have gone there. It becomes tautological. Well, that's yeah, and that's what I mean by self-sealing logic, and that's also a term from uh, Chris Ardris, who talks about you know how we create these self-sealing logics for ourselves, and in some ways they're protecting us from threat. Now, how do you know you're inside of a self-sealing logic bubble? Um, one way you can tell is by paying attention to your emotions. If you're feeling defensive, if you're feeling threatened by someone, some, some other, someone, something's talking, someone's, something someone's talking about, if you're feeling protective or if you're feeling defensive, um, 
that is a good sign that you're retreating into your self-sealing logic bubble. If you're feeling open, you're feeling curious, and you're feeling engaged, then that's a good sign that you're outside of your defensive self-sealing logic bubble. I think a big part of the liminal thinking is to be become more mindful of whether you're where you are in that zone between feeling threatened or feeling curious and engaged and to cultivate that feeling of being open and curious and engaged, not only in yourself, but to cultivate that in other people. For example, you have, everyone has a story about someone at work or that they've worked with that they say is just a sociopath, crazy, a crazy person. They act in ways that don't make any sense. Uh, no one can understand what they're doing. They're, they're crazy. This person's just, you know, out for himself, not care about anybody or whatever. They have a theory about this other person. Going back to the guy who was working late nights, you, you have these theories that, that you're not testing. You can go your whole life or you can go for your whole career without testing these theories and find yourself in a, uh, a loop where you feel that nothing can be changed. The problem, the issue is that people always do things that make sense to them. So fr from their perspective, what they're doing makes sense. And if you want to actually make change happen at work, it's up to you to go and figure out what that is. And often that means having a conversation because <clears throat> what's going on in a lot of cases at work, there are all kinds of motivations, especially in a large enterprise, extremely complex motivations sometimes. What causes people to do the things they do is not evident from looking at just observing their behavior. You can't just, you know, for any one behavior or type of behavior that a person exhibits, there could be a thousand reasons why they would act that way. Just like the guy, that guy who was working late at night. The only way that you can really understand what those motivations are is to create a, a space that's safe enough for them to come out of their self-sealing logic bubble, to cultivate curiosity and openness with them, to give them a feeling of safety. Now, you may not agree with everything they say, but they need to feel, for them to share their real motivations with you, they need to feel that they are accepted for who they are. They need to feel respected. They need to feel like they're being treated like a human being and that you're, even if you don't agree, you're at least open to hearing what they have to say. Now, that can be very difficult, but if you can create that space for other people, you can learn a lot about what is causing them to act in the way that they're ways that they're acting, the more you understand about that, the more doors open as far as you changing things. What I'm hearing you say is that the, 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 the magic is not in, for example, yet another way to uh, set up and organize an organizational structure. I mean, you, you can put a Zappos-style holacracy in place, and it doesn't mean that people are going to get out of their own bubbles and, uh, you know, not only own, you know, deflating their own bubbles, if you will, but understanding that other people they work with are in them. What I hear you saying is that, you know, this liminal thinking approach is something that can make any type of organization, regardless of structure, work better. Um, and that's not just something for enterprises and, and businesses and government agencies and what have you, but it could be, you know, your 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 kid's softball team or, or, or something else. It's just a sort of natural way to look at human relations in a in a more in a really general way. 
Um, bringing it back to our event, and, and actually we'll have to wrap up now. Uh, we could go a lot longer, I'm, I'm sure, but uh, we want to keep our podcast uh, a manageable length. You are someone who also has a journalism background, uh, uh, among other things. Uh, one of the things that Dave is going to be hearing is a, a story of user experience work in the enterprise setting. We have four themes, starting with uh, how we do research and achieve insight in the enterprise, moving on to how we do our craft in the enterprise, moving on to how we experiment and make changes within the enterprise, within the enterprise, and then finally, how we change organizational culture, which is a perfect lead-in to Dave's uh, finale. Uh, I'm really looking forward to you using your journalistic chops to hear and synthesize for us uh, this great set of conversations that's going to be happening at Enterprise UX, and ultimately to do the same uh, in your book. So thank you very much. Uh, I really look forward to, to seeing you in San Antonio in May, Dave. I'm really excited about it, too. So thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone. Uh, again, one more plug for the event, Enterprise UX 2015. Go to enterpriseux.net, San Antonio, May 13th through 15th, uh, with Dave Gray, among others. Thanks again.